Welcome to The Trolley Stops Here, where we talk about real issues with real people from a faith perspective. I'm Laurie Ann Rookard. And I'm Lawrence Clark. This month, we want to celebrate Black History Month. Lawrence, I didn't even realize that Black History Month has its origin at your alma mater, Kent State University, in 1970. Did you know this? Uh, yeah, I've, I actually um, learned this recently myself. I uh, did not know when I attended there. I graduated from Kent State University in 2018 with a bachelor's in education. And it's kind of, you know, really rewarding to me to know that my alma mater played a significant role in the development of uh, Black History Month. So in 1926, it was Woodson that initiated the first Negro History Week on February 7th to celebrate and raise awareness of Black history. Then Carter Woodson, who is now known as the father of Black history, created an organization called the American Association for the Study of Negro Life and History. Following that, later on in February of 1970, Kent State students faculty and administration designated the entire month of February as a celebration of Black history, preceding the national holiday designation, which was established in 1976. Since 1976, each president has designated February as Black History Month and as an endorsed theme. So between 1926 and 1976, it was President Gerald Ford who officially recognized Black History Month during uh, the country's 1976 bicentennial. And then thinking about all of that and thinking about why we celebrate Black history, there is a quote that I remember reading a few days ago that really stuck out to me. And being an educator and knowing that it was Black educators that kind of pioneered Black History Month, um, this stuck out to me and I just wanted to share it. This quote is from Clint Smith, who is a writer, a poet, and in 2017 had a poetry collection uh, that was a finalist for the NAACP Image Awards. The quote says, Black History Month is a time where educators should take seriously the history of violence and oppression that have been done to Black people, but also make clear that Black life is not singularly defined by that violence. The story of Black life is far more expansive than that. Well, as we think about looking at real subjects with real people from a faith perspective, it really is such a privilege for us to have um, a chance to feature an interview with Dr. Sam Lemon. Sam Lemon is a resident of media and an author who's written about his family's escape from slavery. He also speaks about how his inward search with God led to an outward expression of racial justice. So this is part of our feature this month. The other facet of our feature this month for Black History Month is an opportunity to welcome back our friend, Reverend David Brown, who is going to speak about the history of the Methodist Church as it relates to Black History Month. First, we want to begin with Dr. Lemon. Good morning, church. This month, we're taking the opportunity to increase our knowledge of black leaders who have shaped our country. As a faith community, this will assist us in being faithful to God's call to know the body of Christ and to be the body of Christ. 
Last week, we looked into the history of our church regarding abolition, which led us to confession and healing through the sacrament of Holy Communion. Today, we're interviewing Dr. Sam Lemon about his spiritual development, which started as an inward journey as a Quaker and led to his outward journey for racial justice. Dr. Lemon, would you care to introduce yourself? Thank you, and happy to be here. Uh, my name is Sam Lemon. Um, I'm a local uh, media resident. My family has uh, been in media um, since um, the 1860s, when my great-great-grandparents arrived here as runaway slaves. And um, so I'm, I'm about as lo local as you can get uh, when it comes to media. Um, but it was a great place to grow up. Uh, my family is intimately involved in uh, local events and local history. And I'm really happy to share some of that with you today. Thank you. Okay, well, we're going to move right into the questions. Um, Dr. Lemon, you have a book titled Go Stand Upon the Rock, which we have right here, our own copy, where you recount stories handed down to you from your grandmother about your ancestors who were slaves. What were your family's beliefs regarding God, the church, or religious rituals? Well, they were complex. Uh, my grandmother, um, whose house I live in today, um, was the first person of color baptized at Christ's Episcopal Church uh, in media. My family had always uh, been uh, lifelong attenders uh, of that church. Um, my uh, Her mother, uh, who was... Um, uh, Josefa Phillips, who emigrated to the U.S. from the, um, it wasn't the Virgin Islands at that time, it was called the Danish West Indies. Uh, she emigrated here in 1885 via, um, you know, uh, Ellis Island. And she brought with her, she was a devout Lutheran, uh, but she also brought with her a very um, strong belief in the island religion. Um, and so in the Caribbean, depending on, in a sense, what language was being spoken, or or, or who had um, you know populated those islands, um, and it, it could be voodoo um, in the ha the uh, French-speaking islands like like Haiti. It could be Santeria uh, in the Spanish-speaking islands like um, Cuba and and, um, and Puerto Rico, uh, or it might be uh, Obia, um, and uh, that's something that was also um, you know widespread in the Caribbean, um, but also in the U.S. like in the um, uh, the the offshore islands in um, South Carolina uh, in those areas. So there's there's an old saying that in the people of, of Haiti, 99% um, of them are Catholics, but 100% believe in voodoo. Mm -hmm. So there's this, you know, dualistic um, uh, approach to, to beliefs that, that, that kind of melt. And, and that was um, akin to my family's uh, experience. Um, as I said, I mean, my, my great-grandmother was a devout Lutheran, uh, but she believed just as strongly uh, in the island religion. So she, she brought those cultures and traditions uh, with her. Uh, she was a clairvoyant. Uh, she was able to tell uh, the, the, the future. She had a favorite spirit named Charlie, who uh, apparently had a, uh, his own um, uh, chair reserved for him in the living room. And uh, none of her children or grandchildren that were allowed to sit in Charlie's chair. Uh, she would leave food out for him. Um, and then she, she did other practices like sprinkle red brick dust in front of the doors and windows to keep out the evil spirits. Um, but um, as I said, the, the obverse side of, of, of her spirituality was devout Lutheranism. Mm. And um, we, 
she she began attending Christ Church immediately because when she arrived in the um, you know the late 1880s, uh, she couldn't find a Lutheran church in this vicinity, so that was kind of close to what she was used to. Uh, again, my grandmother was first person of color, baptized in 1891. There, uh, we'd always been members uh, ever since. So that's kind of where I grew up, uh, you know, in terms of my, my spiritual uh, experience. So um, you know, we, we had this kind of complex uh, belief system um, yeah. that 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 all kind of meshed together, and and uh, we were able to um, that lasted for generations. It, you know, and it certainly has impacted me even to today. Yeah, I mean, complex is just the right word to talk about that. I know I lived in Barbados for three years, and so I had a chance to visit Haiti and Trinidad and a few other areas. I'm a little tiny, tiny bit familiar with voodoo, and like you're saying about how you have many, many people believing in Catholicism, Anglicism, Methodism, but you're right about the 100%, I mean 100%, totally uh, on board with voodoo. Uh, absolutely. Um, and even though um, you know Anglicanism was, was the foundation of my religious beliefs and, and growing up in the church, and I was an altar boy and sang in the choir and, and um, you know, uh, confirmed um, there. Uh, when I went to um, St. Joseph's University uh, for my undergraduate uh, education, um, it, it was a requirement that you had to take three theology courses and three philosophy courses. So the, the theology courses I took were um, comparative religions, which just dramatically in, enhanced my my understanding of re religion and, other, and world religions and other people's uh, belief systems. Um, and then two courses in Judaism uh, taught by a rabbi on campus, which, you know, for the early 1970s was was really pretty unique. And and those three courses just expanded my thinking, um, you know, incredibly. Because like many people who grow up in, in traditional church doctrine, um, you, you're sort of taught um, it, it's either spoken or an unspoken tradition that, that that one way is the way mm -hmm. and everybody else is kind of wrong um, and, and then when I when I took these courses in comparative religion and, and learned about you know Islam and, and Buddhism and and uh, you know um, I did start to do a lot of reading on my own uh, Native American spirituality uh, I, I read a book called God is Red which which had a profound impact uh, on my thinking and then I came to understand that um, you know everybody has a different spiritual path and you know maybe there isn't one one right way, and if you think of God as omnipotent and, and you know, all-powerful and all-knowing, um, and this is something that, that is reinforced through Quaker beliefs, God is able to speak to each person in a way that they can understand. Mm. So, you know, it wouldn't make sense for God not to understand Chinese <laughs> and only speak English, uh, you know. Um, so, um, so, so, so those courses had, had a dramatic lifelong impact uh, on me. And as I said, um, you know, as I grew up later on my own and did a lot of reading, particularly Native American culture and history and, and spirituality, uh, that also speaks to me uh, in a way and, and, and I, uh, that's inclusive in terms of my own religious beliefs. And then uh, later, um, 30 years ago, when I... Um, formerly left um, the Christ Episcopal Church um, to uh, to become a Quaker and, and, and had that transition, that journey. Um, so again, uh, you know, it gives me kind of this eclectic approach in which I can appreciate other people's sincere beliefs. And, um, and much of to, to, to me, the, the proof in the pudding is how you act on those beliefs and how you treat other people and how you treat animals in the planet, in the environment. Mm -hmm. um, because I think those are all things that God would want for us to do. 
Yeah, so referencing a blog um, quote that you uh, offered recently, well, actually a number of years back, I was wondering, do you think that your family's history as slave shelter by Quakers had any bearing on your eventual journey to the Quaker faith? <laughs> um, not deliberately, but it's it's quite interesting because growing up, um, hearing the stories of, uh, of my grandmother and oral tradition was very, very strong in my family. Uh, I knew that um, when my ancestors arrived uh, in media, they had to travel separately uh, because one looked very white. Uh, my great-great-grandfather, he was the son of his, his enslaver. He had red hair, green eyes, and, and his skin, skin was so light that he was able to walk 300 miles uh, from the plantation to media. He said no one ever stopped him because everyone he met assumed he was a white man. Uh, he also said he was treated pretty well uh, by the family. And uh, he was their carriage driver, which was, you know, on, on the scale of jobs, quote-unquote, or, or duties a slave could have, have uh, that was pretty top of the food chain. And what's even more important about that is he was able to develop the geographic knowledge that I'm sure helped him to escape um, and travel those 300 miles. Because not only did slavery as an institution, um, you know, separate people from their culture and their history and their identity, they also kept them geographically ignorant. So the average slave generally didn't travel more than five miles uh, from home. Um, so when, when the, they escaped, and, and my great-grandmother, um, as I said, had to escape separately with uh, two children, a two-year-old and a nine-year-old. She was very West African. Um, I have a great picture of her uh, uh, from a tintype photograph. Uh, she's just absolutely gorgeous, striking um, features. Uh, but when they arrived, uh, they were taken in by local Quakers. So my grandmother told me the names of those Quakers, uh, Isaac and Elizabeth Smedley Arnold. Mm -hmm. And so they were members of Providence Meeting. And, um, you know, Cornelius arrived first, and they, he lived with them. And then, um, you know, Martha Jane came later with two children, um, and the, the Quakers helped them get established. Um, they originally lived in the county poorhouse, uh, which was on the, the grounds of uh, media media school, um, and then they lived in the uh, Mitchell House, which is called the Mitchell House today, um, which wasn't wasn't anything fancy or, 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 or you know, um, it was the, um, the the house of a local saddle maker, uh, I think it was. So they, they rented uh, that for a while, they got jobs, they saved money, and then eventually they earned enough money in which they could buy their own house at 308 North Olive Street, and there's a picture of that, uh, that house uh, in there. So uh, they bought that in 1872. Uh, about 100 years later, my grandma finally sold the property and the house was torn down. But my, my, my family had, we, we had a kind of a kibitz experience. So we had that house at 308. We have my, my grandfather, great-grandfather uh, bought the house I live in today at 423. And so seven generations of us lived in both houses. Okay. And it was just a really a, a tremendous uh, experience. So I, I didn't know when I, when I was drawn to the property meeting and I visited media meeting and, and a couple of others um, and it wasn't until I'd been a member for some years that I discovered that Isaac and Elizabeth Mendelyarna were members of Providence Meeting. Oh my goodness. Uh, I'd known okay. their names, but I didn't know, yeah. Yeah. you know, that much about them. So, you know, I, I, I don't think that was accidental. Mm. I, I think that sometimes uh, truth is, uh, you know, is revealed to us uh, on an ongoing way. Mm. Mm, thank you. 
So referencing that blog again, in 2016, you wrote a blog for mm -hmm. the American Friends Service Committee, mm -hmm. and in it you discussed your inward journey as a Quaker and the way it connects to your outward journey for racial justice. Can you elaborate on this and how the journey has progressed over the past six years? Absolutely. Um, a fundamental difference um, to me between Quakerism and, and other religions, and, and speaking of you know, my, my experience in growing up in, in the Episcopal Church, the, you know, the, 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 the congregation was kind of like the audience. Um, you know, it was the priest who you know, did, did the, the ceremonial things and gave the homilies and, and that type of thing. Um, but it, it wasn't, in, in the black church oftentimes, um, there's, there's a different type of dynamism. And the congregation is involved. Yeah, there's you know. no call and response. Yeah, there's right? call and response. If you, you know. call and no one responds, there's nothing yeah, going on. Yeah, right? you're right. going to respond. Yeah, you better. Uh, <laughs> and so, um, you know, not, not that the, the Episcopal Church is devoid of, of passion. And, and uh, you know, I, I love the organ music and the old Anglican hymns and, uh, you know, that, that type of thing. But um, one of the things that becoming a Quaker forced me to do was look inward um, because, you know, I had a difficult childhood and, and uh, you know, difficult times during adulthood, but um, what it forced me to do was look inward and say, okay, maybe these things that were unfair happened to me, but what is my role in this? And, and you know, w w did I have a hand in constructing my own problems? And, um, you know, whether I did or didn't, how do I respond to them, you know, in, in, a, in a constructive way that's going to make me a better person? So it's, it's kind of like a, a silent confessional, uh, you know, in, in a way. And then coming to, to that, that point um, of being honest with myself and being open to other ideas and, and you know, uh, knowledge, not just through the teachings of George Fox, but as I mentioned earlier, you know, um, teachings of other um, religious beliefs as well. But the thing that Quakerism did for me is there's a component of service, there's a component of action, uh, right action. And so if I, if I believe in, in certain things, um, and, you know, Quakers believe in, you know, sense of community and, and equality and, you know, uh, you know egalitarianism and, and um, you know, service. Um, what am I doing to move that forward? Because to me, the least important part of being a Quaker is the hour we spend in the Quaker meeting house on Sundays. Okay. What do we do outside of the meeting house? So I like to say when I'm not physically at the meeting, the meeting is inside me. And so how do I carry that? And, and you know, every day of my life, I have to make decisions on, on being a Quaker. And that involves, you know, ethics and ecology and, and not wasting water and, and you, know, uh, you know, being nice to people, even when it's not going to benefit me. Um, you know, how do I improve myself so I'm, I'm a better version of myself uh, all the time? Um, and then beyond that, what am I doing to help make the world a better place? Because I just can't sit in a meeting house once a, a week on Sunday, um, or virtually as, as we, we, we also have it on now, and, and pretend that I'm holy and pretend that I'm good. I, I, I have to I have to live out those principles. Mm -hmm. um, and um, George Fox said, you know, that we should go all over the world um, and, um, you know, um, uh, kind of show by example you know, like what, what, what our, our, what our beliefs are. So that kind of gave me, um, 
this sort of activism. Um, you know, I, I already had this family history of, um, you know, my ancestors who were liberated slaves. In, in 1860, there were nearly 4 million enslaved people in the United States. Only about 1% successfully escaped. So that, that's, that's less than 40,000. Um, uh, Dr. Henry Louis Gates, uh, the Harvard, uh, uh, Black Harvard historian, says he thinks maybe about 20,000. So the, these numbers of the uh, Underground Railroad are, are really uh, reported today are quite inflated. So, you know, I, I come from a group of people that 1%, uh, you know, that, that 20,000 out of nearly 4 million. So I, I feel like I have an obligation, mm. you know. Um, I also feel like I have a chip on my shoulder when it comes to race. And, and brutality and mistreatment of women and children. Um, and I like having that chip because it, it, it prods me to respond to things when I know that those things are wrong. So um, it doesn't mean looking down on other people or, or, or necessarily hating other people, but it means I cannot look the other way mm-hmm. when I see uh, an injustice. And that's, that's what led me to the case of Alexander Clay Williams. Yes, another whole book unto itself. So both of my sons attended uh, Frankfurt Friends Quaker School, and so I'm a little bit familiar with the SPICES, the, mm-hmm. yep, the yep. acronym that describes yep. all mm-hmm. of the things mm-hmm. you're, you're referring to. Um, and when you talk about right action mm-hmm. and how like a tiny bit of the week is sitting at the meeting, but the rest of it is carrying the meeting into the world mm-hmm. and right action, kind of leads me to my next question about that, which is, um, are there some examples of instances where um, you pushed yourself in your outward journey for racial justice? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, uh, you know, members of my meeting who've done various things um, have gotten arrested for uh, you know promoting social justice and, and civil rights. Uh, one gentleman was arrested because he was a group with other um, faith-based people uh, protesting um, a gun shop in West Philadelphia um, that was knowingly selling um, guns to straw purchasers, uh, which were then used in crimes. Uh, so he and these people campaigned about that. They, they got arrested. Uh, the gun shop was later closed down because it was revealed what, what they were actually doing. Uh, another friend of mine, um, an African-American woman, uh, was arrested two years ago on Mother's Day um, uh, for protesting uh, for the Poor People's March in Washington, D.C. Uh, and I have had friends who were arrested uh, down at the border for uh, protesting the treatment of, of people. So, you know, I, I tried to think of, you know, what, what could I do in my little corner? of the world mm-hmm. to try to help make the world a better place. And the story of Alexander McClay Williams, my grandmother told me probably I was 10 or 12 years old. And that, that story stayed with me ever since. Um, and then as I got older, um, I began to do more, you know, some research, formal research, and, and um, you know, really began to pursue that. And so I would say for over 30 years, uh, I've researched that, that story. And I, I began... So, so, as you know, Alexander Clay Williams was a 16-year-old black kid who was a student at Glen Mills uh, School. They called him inmates at the time because it was really more like a reform school. Mm-hmm. And he was falsely accused, um, arrested, convicted, and sentenced to death um, at the media courthouse uh, here for a murder he did not commit. 
and um, he was learning able disabled and he had a lot of history of family problems so he really wasn't eloquent and able to to defend himself but he also was standing up an entire system who was determined to, to make someone punish uh, you know, to punish someone uh, for, for this crime and so as I began my research what I wanted to know was why would a kid do such a horrible thing I mean, this was a horrible gruesome murder of one of the house parents uh, in a cottage he used to live in um, and he, he later asked to be moved from that cottage because the victim's husband the woman's husband um, would kick him around on the floor for fun and when the, the victim, the, the Vida, the, the wife would see this, she would try to intervene and the hun husband would assault her. Um, so this woman was like his guardian angel, like the only person on that entire school campus who really seemed to care about him. So he, he would be the, she would be the last person that he would ever uh, want, want to harm. And so as, as I conducted my research and, and I got permission from Glenn Mills School to go down to the Historical Society of Pennsylvania and, and look at his school records, because that's where their archives uh, are kept, and and uh, begin gathering, uh, you know, um, contemporary newspaper articles. I began thinking he he couldn't have done this on his own. Somebody must have put him up to this. And then the more I researched, the more I found that nobody put him up to this. He didn't even do it. And um, it wasn't until. I connected with uh, Mary Schaefer, who is a, a reporter for the Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, who about 2015 filed a Freedom of uh, Information Act um, with the county to, to see the uh, original trial transcript. And over the decades, I would stop in periodically to, to the county offices, to the district attorney's office, saying, do you have any information on this case? No, 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 that's all gone, yeah, blah, blah, blah. So Mary Schaefer files this, this government request, which you're not allowed to ignore. And lo and behold, the 300-page trial transcript is produced. And so she read it. She told me about it. I read it. And it was heartbreaking. It was absolutely heartbreaking. Uh, they, they didn't even try to hide what they did. And, and um, you know, as oftentimes in heinous murders, um, you know, the, the community is de demanding uh, justice. And, uh, and, and they want these things quickly solved. But when, when I read that... Um, not only did, did the, you know, the detectives and, and prosecutor um, and break the law um, to frame this kid, um, you know, when my great-grandfather, uh, who was the first African-American attorney appointed to the Delaware County Bar, who was appointed then by the court to represent this kid, when he tried to bring this up in court and that the, 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 um, the, the, the kid's um, quote-unquote confession, uh, which was recorded under undocumented circumstances mm -hmm. without a parent or, or guardian present or a legal attorney present, the judge said, so what if that be the case? Um, so it, it was it was a criminal conspiracy on the part of these people in the criminal justice system, from the detectives to the county, to the district attorney to the judge, that that just railroaded this poor sixteen year old kid um, who remains the youngest person today executed by the state of Pennsylvania. So there's so much that I can't do to change injustice in the world, but this is one little corner of the world yeah. I can do something about. And you've spent a lot of time. L literally I mean, half of my life. <laughs> I was going to say, it evolved over years, yeah. but then yeah. here you have yeah. found. And, and I can't get it, let it go because I, I feel like I, I have this obligation, as I mentioned before. Um, 
there's a bit of a family obligation because my great grandfather, who was a remarkable pioneering attorney, uh, he was a practicing lawyer for 54 years. Uh, he was held in great esteem, uh, too far ahead of his time to become a judge. Um, but um, you know, he was admitted to the bar in 1891. By 1960, there had only been three African American members mm-hmm. who uh, were accepted into the Delaware County Bar, and that third member, uh, Judge. Um, uh, Wright uh, Senior uh, 10 years later was appointed to be the first black judge by then Governor Milton Schaap. So, you know, from 1891 to 1960 there were only three African American members lawyers on the Delaware County Bar. So, so that shows you what, what a what a pioneer uh, mm-hmm. he, he really is. So so a little bit of that was, you know, sort of family honor. I wanted to find out right. why did this, this brilliant attorney, my ancestor, um, lose this incredibly important case at the height of his career um, and I found out because his hands were, were, were tied and evidence was withheld and mm-hmm. other evidence was forged and this was a fait accompli they, they had already decided uh, this kid was guilty of this this, this murder so he did the best that he could but it, uh, he would have never won uh, mm-hmm. this case uh, at all so so um, you're writing this book was it was really about finding out about racial justice like uncovering injustice uh, Absolutely. It was it was a lot like if you see a crime on the street, you have a choice. Mm-hmm. Do you look the other way and hear that person crying for help, or do you do something? Now maybe you know you don't intervene right then and there, but you call the police, but you re- report that you, you do something. And I felt this obligation, um, not just to my great grandfather, but to these two poor individuals. Mm-hmm. This woman who was almost certainly murdered by her violent husband, and this poor kid who was framed for this murder and executed. I felt an obligation to them. Like there was a spiritual component to this now, not just a historical one. And and you know the justice certainly plays a huge role in there, but justice also applies uh, to people who have been wrongly killed mm-hmm. and, and that's, that's, a, that's a concept I think some people have trouble understanding but that, that has healing that has intergenerational healing so when you set the record straight when you acknowledge that somebody was, was wrongly in prison or wrongly killed you know that, that helps their descendants but I also truly believe that it helps them as, as well mm-hmm. um, so, so all of those factors kind of fit into why I um, I didn't intend to spend 35 years working yeah. on this um, it was it's been a burden but it, I was gonna say it kind of grabbed you it captivated you it, it was just haunting almost it, sounds like. it, it truly is haunting yeah. it truly is haunting because I mean as I was doing my research you know um, and thinking about this poor kid in the electric chair, and, and, and I read a contemporary article that you know he he was carried sobbing uh, to to the death chamber, and sometimes like that image would just pop into my head driving down the down the road, and I start crying, like like I you know I, I couldn't I couldn't divorce myself of, of the emotional the emotionality of of that, and and this this poor kid like not understanding, not knowing like why. Why this 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 was happening uh, to him? Um, so as I said, I mean this this was kind of like I felt like I was given this task. Um, it, it's not something I would have chosen, um, but I've I've always felt like I, I never had a choice. It was kind of like you know God telling Noah to build that ark, and I'm sure there were days when Noah didn't feel like going to work, <laughs> but you don't have a choice. Sometimes you you have to do what the spirit commands you to do yeah and I feel like that's um, mm-hmm. and and uh, you know 
I'm hoping uh, there's been a lot of movement, there's been a lot of publicity, and I'm hoping that that case may may work its way back into court this year. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, kind of in keeping with this Quaker idea of thoughts, I found a scripture that I thought it was lines up with everything you've been saying, which is Romans 12, 2a, and it reads, Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I guess my last question for you would be, how can Black History Month be an opportunity to inform and educate ourselves as we take steps to shape the future? Absolutely. That's a great question. Um, you know, one of, one of the... It's not a problem about black history. It's a problem of how people respond. And you, you hear this, uh, you know, uh, critical race theory, um, which which all that is is it's it's an approach to teaching history accurately. And there's there's violent pushback uh, or uh, you know uh, extreme pushback uh, about that. And and you know I read one person, I don't know if he was an educator or politician. I think probably saying, um, but that makes uh, white children feel guilty uh, about the past. Well, you know, uh, some people should feel guilty about the past, about what happened, um, because you know, institutional racism has existed in America since since before America, since you know, 1619, when when the, the first slaves were, were, were brought to, to to Jamestown, and the, the the institution was was hard and it was brutal and and it was enforced with with violence and murder. Um, my great great grandmother, Martha Jane. Parham, um, who, who came here as a runaway slave, um, on her plantation. So, in, in contrast to her husband, who was treated well, probably because he looked like one of the family <laughs> members who enslaved him, um, her job on the, the plantation was that of a breeding woman. So, beginning at age 14, until she escaped 10 years later, she was forced to bear children. So, we don't know how many children she had. Um, she escaped with two, a two-year-old and a nine-year-old. But my grandmother said she would never discuss the South, her life in the South, because she was so traumatized by that experience. And so when people think about slavery, and even the brutal side of slavery with the, with the whippings, the, they, they don't think about institutional rape. They don't think about, you know, women being forced to have uh, babies. And, and that's why the slave population um, in, in, in the Northeast, uh, in America, grew uh, exponentially more than, uh, you know, uh, slave populations in South America or, you know, Central America or, or um, you know, or the Caribbean. Um, and and uh, enslavers, uh, owners, and, and, and their, their henchmen would take an active part uh, in this, and then women had no, no say. Um, so, you know, you find uh, stories, um, you know, um, like the Margaret Garner uh, story uh, that uh, in the book Beloved, uh, who, who killed two of her children rather than uh, be forced to, to carry them back uh, to slavery. So the, the, what it did is they were crimes against humanity. Uh, you know, people talk about the Nazis a lot, and this wasn't that different except on a broad scale, slaves were not killed because they were expensive. Um, and so uh, I, I found on Martha Jane's plantation, her, her, her enslaver had a evaluation of Negroes. Uh, it was uh, this list. And so it listed, you know, the, the 30 or so, uh, you know, enslaved people he owned and what their, what their dollar value was. Mm -hmm. And so um, 
you know, a woman like her might be worth uh, uh, $1,200. Uh, you know, Cornelius or somebody, a uh, man with a, with a technical skill, might be worth, um, you know, um, uh, $1,500. A child might be worth as much as $600. Um, there was a woman named Kizzy or Lizzie, I, I can't tell because of the handwriting, is worth zero. Mm. And here's a woman that probably worked all of her life. Um, you know, you could you could take her body and, and, and boil down the bones and the bones would be worth more than zero uh, you know and um, you know it's 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 astonishing um, so so when you look at today why people are adamant against you know having that that, that truth history told and, and not just during slavery but post slavery um, you know when reconstruction was aborted and, and and the rights that blacks were beginning to have were ripped away and, and the KKK was born you know in 1867 and and that, uh, you know, a century and a half of, of terror. Uh, they were America's first terror organization. Mm-hmm. And then you look at, you know, t- today, uh, institutionally, um, there, there's a, a case that was uh, litigated th- this past year. The U.S. Uh, Department of Agriculture uh, had been systematically discriminating against black farmers. So, you know, farmers, it takes a while between the time they plant their, their, their crops and the time they harvest them and, and sell them. So farmers are always in need of loans. So when white farmers would apply for loans, um, you know, they would get uh, their, their loans in about 30 days. Black farmers, it could take three years. And the government sued its own department of USDA for this discrimination. And so, uh, you know, when, when that was found to be the case, and then the USDA wanted to change and, and, and ameliorate that and have uh, special, you know, uh, uh, programs for, for black farmers, white farmers rebelled. I said, well, that's discrimination, mm-hmm. um, you know. But but even in a non-institutional way, you look at the, the, the relentless murders. I mean, you know, going back to the 60s and, and moving forward, you know, Maker Evers, Dr. Martin Luther King, Ahmaud Aubrey last year, mm-hmm. uh, who was chased down for, for jogging in his neighborhood by three white supremacists who just murdered him. Mm-hmm. Um, I just read this morning there was a case, and I forget which uh, state this was, but a very similar case. Um, a black delivery man for a FedEx, wearing a FedEx uniform, um, was chased by, by uh, a white man and, and his father uh, with guns, and, they, and they, they shot up the vehicle as he sped away. So th- this is a state of America, and I think that we repeat these we repeat these tragedies and these crimes because people don't remember the past. And then there's that old expression, you know, people who can't remember the past are condemned to repeat it. So if, so, so if we embrace this past and, and look at not just the tragedies and, and the horrors, but also, you know, the, the countless things that, that black, uh, you know, scientists and businessmen and, and, and entrepreneurs have created, the, the, the stoplight, <laughs> for example, yeah. you, know, uh, you know, open heart surgery, a black mm-hmm. surgeon first did that, that that it humanizes people, right. and when we humanize people, it makes it more difficult mm-hmm. to to think of them as the other, as someone less than. So I, I think that's the that's the the true value of Black History Month, and, and why we need to embrace it and and make it required learning. 
in our schools. And I, I really want to thank you for uh, sharing in this interview, for um, participating in it. I, As you're talking, I'm aware of all of the emotion that goes with remembering. It's not just you talking about um, some document that relates to somebody else. It's you talking about your history. And just a few weeks ago, we talked about different types of love that the Greeks observed. And mm -hmm. there was one type, I don't know if it's, I can't remember, it's called matika or something like that, but it has to do with an artist, an expression in which someone gives a part of themselves. And I feel like you gave a part of yourself to us today. And, um, and that's a sacrifice that not everybody would, would want to make or is willing to make. I know you do it as a Quaker, but I thank you for sharing a part of yourself. And I know you feel that that's, I mean, that's going to allow us to learn and not make the same mistakes going forward. Absolutely. And, and, and perhaps in a slightly selfish way, uh, it benefits me because um, trauma is passed down through the generations. So, uh, and they've done scientific studies of, of showing how people, uh, um, you know, who have suffered starvation and, and uh, famines in, in Europe and slavery in America, um, two or three generations later, four generations later, that that impact um, is felt, uh, you know, uh, either biologically through hypertension, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, high blood pressure, uh, you know, heart disease, you know, things that, that are directly related to those slave diets and that stress, uh, you know, uh, racism is a stress that shortens people's lives. Um, and um, so, so, you know, in setting the record straight and healing the past, I'm healing myself in a sense, mm. you know, I'm coming into terms with, with myself. And, um, and I understand why I have these, um, shadows sometimes mm -hmm. hanging over. Why well, I have this sadness hanging over uh, me sometimes. Um, I have an, uh, you know, an ancestor I've been tracing, trying to trace for years, Cornelius' sister, who uh, when he was young, she was sold away to New Orleans. Um, I, I miss her. Mm. You know, I, I feel like I have an obligation to try and find her. Mm -hmm. And, and um, hopefully one day I will. But um, so this, this, you know, in helping others, we help ourselves. Okay. Yeah. Well, thanks again so much. My pleasure. My pleasure. All right. And now here are some interesting black facts for Black History Month. Did you know that Garrett Morgan is the person who patented the first traffic signal in the United States. And just thinking about traffic, especially, you know, in the Philadelphia media area, I cannot imagine where we would be, not only there or anywhere, without traffic signals. Colson Whitehead was the first writer to win a Pulitzer Prize for consecutive books. And then Shirley uh, Chris Holm, um, was the first African-American woman to be elected into Congress in the United States. How amazing. So after listening to that interview, um, it just, so many parts of it kind of just connected to experiences and things that I've heard and 
kind of connected to a dream of mine that I've always wanted to listen to examples of primary sources like himself that describe a time where his family was going through adversity um, and uh, had to persevere through unimaginable challenges. And I think we can connect those same concepts to things that we're going through today, dealing with challenges that include, you know, modern day systemic racism, the pandemic, and even grief. And also asking God to guide us through, um, showing us the path, and then making sure that we follow. I, you know, God, show me the way and I will follow. Um, and that also reminds me of uh, the Underground Railroad, too. Um, and as we, you know, transition from Black History Month to Women's History Month, I can't wait to listen and learn more and more about that every every you know every January and I'm sorry every March and every February but I think it's also important to know that you know black history and women's history is 24 7 365 days out of the year it's not just you know something that we highlight in February and women's history is not something that we only highlight in March it's an ongoing thing it's a mindset thing it's a perspective thing um, it's something that we should continually appreciate and and practice the celebrations throughout each day. Yeah, there are two things that I want to mention as takeaways from Dr. Lemon's interview before I uh, lead us into the second part of our podcast. Uh, the first thing was when Dr. Lemon said that out of the people who survived his family was in the 1% of people who survived slavery. And as a result of that, he feels responsible. In fact, he said that he has a chip on his shoulder and that chip is something that, a, a kind of a heaviness, a, a calling, a haunting, a something, something that pushes him to want to live in right action whether or not he can control his history and what happened to him, he believes he can respond appropriately with right action in a way that makes a difference in the world. And so that was one thing that was very striking to me about the interview. And I think the other thing was, and it's part of the way that we developed the, the title for this podcast, is that he said that the quote was, um, those persons who don't remember their past are destined to repeat it. And so I think this is part of what we're doing is wanting to look back and remember back and struggle in the, what the history was and also, but be challenged and, and, uh, to, to make the future something very different. So I wanted to just, um, mention those two takeaways from Dr. Lemon. Um, and then of course it is my pleasure and happiness to welcome our friend, Reverend David Brown, who we've known for, I guess, at least five or six years now. Uh, he is going to be speaking to us on the topic of being chosen or not. Amen. Amen, 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 amen. It is wonderful, as always, to be with you all. Uh, and uh, uh, when Reverend Lori Ann mentioned about how long we've been together, it, it, we have been working a long time together, uh, really fighting. Wait a minute, me. I'm so used to wearing my mask, now I can at least take it off as I'm talking with you. 
but it's, we've been working so long for the work we've been trying to do together to really keep things uh, into living into this beloved community. Um, and as she said before, you never want to get a call from the district superintendent and, um, because you never know where it's going to go. But um, part of what uh, the unfortunate work uh, sometimes that we have to do uh, is that we're taking a new direction uh, as a uh, denomination. And one reason why I'm here, and I'm glad we've got folks who are watching online, is because I'm going to need to document this, uh, what I'm about to do. Um, so uh, when you were coming in, uh, you were given a badge or a bracelet. Uh, some are green, some are blue. Um, what I'm going to ask you to do, that those people who have a blue bracelet, I'm going to ask you, unfortunately, to leave. I have to ask you to leave uh, the sanctuary. Uh, we're doing something different. Uh, I got a word from the bishop uh, to uh, try to uh, do something different. And unfortunately, the people were, uh, who have the, the blue bracelets need to gather their things up. Those who are online, I know you don't have a bracelet, but I need you to document it. Everyone who is in, on green uh, will please stay, and you'll be able to receive the message. Uh, I can't tell the folks who are in blue what you're going to need to do when you leave, but um, I'm going to leave that up to you. I know that's, I know that's, okay, uh, folks who are at the door, please stop, and please come back and take your seats. Please take your seats. I know. Well, no, no, only one message for the price, no, I'm just kidding. But I am very, very serious about what just happened. Um, and I'm going to ask you how it felt when you were asked to get up and leave. No explanation. I've been before you before, so maybe you trusted what I was saying. But I'm curious, for those who were asked to leave, what did it feel like? Please share. You were confused. Why? Because I didn't know what you were going to do with folks who are with the church, the members who are staying. Good. Yeah, and, and, you know, like I was curious and confused. Yeah. Ah, curious and confused. Okay. Anybody else have a feeling? I, and I heard, heard some laughter, um, which was okay. We're not sure what this is all about, but... Yeah, uh, I, and I didn't even ask because I didn't know whether or not our musicians had um, uh, the, the band. So, but I was going to just dismiss the the musicians. But did anybody else want to share what it felt like? Yeah, go ahead. Hmm. Not everyone was welcome. It, not everyone. You thought everyone is welcome here, not just the chosen few. Beautifully said. Thank you. Anybody else? Yes, go right ahead. Mmm, Team Green, but you felt the division. Absolutely. Okay, thank you for that. Anyone else want to share? Yeah, please. I felt very comfortable, but I Are you Team Green? Oh, you have to leave now. No, I'm just kidding. Very good, but you felt comfortable that you had the, the, a privilege to stay. Good. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. 
Wow. See that, Team Blue? All right, good. There was something waiting for you under the door. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you. Absolutely. Yes, yes, go right ahead in the back. I'm sorry, say again. That's wonderful. You were curious why no one else around you said, don't go. Nobody stood up for you. After all, this is your church, and who am I? Right? I, 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 and I'm glad that we, just in case, because I'm sure I'm going to get calls about this later, those folks who are watching YouTube, when I invoke the bishop's uh, directive, eh, you know, it was just an exercise, okay? So, um, but but that, it, what you all are saying is, is very, very important. And when we were looking at this particular uh, time to... to uh, We'll talk a little bit more, but I want you to remember the feeling that you had uh, that we've just expressed. And also, the, uh, these uh, little uh, bracelets are temporary. It's going to take a little doing to take them off. But remember the feeling that was shared in the sanctuary about when you felt that you had to get up and go or you were being asked to stay or no one stood up for you. And when we were thinking, Reverend Lorianne and I were talking about, you know, what, how to illustrate the point. And the point is about the sermon and the message about what is it to be chosen or not chosen. And as it relates to Black History Month in particular, we have, as a matter of fact, I was so privileged to watch your service the first Sunday of, uh, uh, of February when we talked about the situation that happened in the Methodist Episcopal Church where uh, centuries ago, but you know, still the memory is still there, where there were people who were of the same church who were physically removed from that church. It was the first act in the United States of civil disobedience because the folks who actually helped to build the church who happened to be African-American, identify as African-American, were kneeling at the altar making a prayer when an usher came along and forcibly picked them up and told them they had to go. They had to leave. So imagine then when we were thinking about how would we make that illustration in a setting like this? Because if it happens to one of us, then it's happening to all of us. Because when you're chosen or not, then it actually has something to do with how you're feeling about that. And I would say, just to kind of counter one view, it says that it, although this happened many, many years ago, we still make those choices now. We still choose either to stand up for folks or not stand up for folks. I I'm so glad that we had so many prayers about the folks who are suffering in the Ukraine because guess what? Those people are yet among us. And we have to think about, even though it feels like it's hundreds and thousands of miles away, these things happen to us all the time. So imagine if you were part of a congregation that all of a sudden, because someone said you're different, you have to now do things differently. Now, there's a couple of things I wanted to point out. There's a couple of dynamics that I want to point out in terms of that very, very real illustration. And that is, there's a power dynamic that happens here. Because I'm standing here, because I happen to have the mic, and because you have heard me before and you've been very gracious with your hospitality to me, that you if only temporarily yielded to my power to my authority. As, as what you said, said maybe he's up to something. Maybe he's trying to illustrate something. And, and maybe I was, and maybe that's the case. But a lot of times, we yield to power without knowing that we're yielding to power. 
Sometimes someone who happens to stand in authority can say one thing and then make sure that everybody complies. And, and interestingly enough, sometimes we unwittingly or unconsciously decide that I guess we have to do this. But I love this comment that was made in the back. No one around said, don't go, stay. He's doing something that you don't have to necessarily do. Now, so I'm curious a little bit, why did you comply? Was it just because it was, well, let's see what's going to happen. I mean, this guy can't be that bad. I mean, he's told some good jokes. Uh, uh, our pastor has said that, you know, he's a good man and that we work together. But why did you comply? Yeah, go ahead. Wow. If I were Vladimir Putin, that's very, very interesting. Thank you for that. Because, again, that authority says this is what you're going to do, whether it's right or wrong. Now, here's the thing. One thing I've come to learn, because I've, I've studied racism, and, 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 I, and, I, and I love the, the litany that we shared in terms of racism. There's so many instances throughout our history where someone didn't stand up for someone else that had some terrible, terrible outcomes. Now, if you can, you've, you've seen me before, folks who have stood up uh, next to me knows that I'm pretty small of stature, but I got a big fight in me. I've always been this height, at least since the sixth grade, but, you know, I'm always trying to look out for the little guy, maybe because I am the little guy, but I've been on the other side where someone has dismissed me and said that you're not worthy, or, and maybe not so many words, but once that happens to you, you'll never forget it. You'll never forget it because sometimes it might happen to you. So again, why did you comply? Particularly in a church like First, uh, church, like First Church that is really built around standing up. And really, we are a reconciling congregation. We, 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 we tend to attract people who are you know, fighters to the core. They believe in what they do. And yet, all of a sudden, this little guy from West Philadelphia says, get up and go. Other people stay. Why did you do that? And you may not know why, and that's okay because we're still human. We still sometimes trust, and sometimes we think that there's going to be a decent outcome. But in this Black History Month, in this moment in particular, I felt it was very, very important for all of us to feel what it's like to be othered. We even have uh, diff different terminology. I was at a conference last week, and they talked about what is it to be, to be the differently masked I never heard that term before. Uh, and maybe it's because where we were, but it's like, you know, even we are making judgments on who's wearing a mask and who's not, who might be vaccinated and who is not, and what decisions are being made and what are decisions that are not being, being made. So when you think about this, I want to go a little bit into kind of my own personal journey because I never knew that I was not chosen. And we had just sang the song. It's like, it's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not my mother, not my brother, not my sister, but it's me. And sometimes we have to focus on our own journey to determine how we're going to continue to move forward. So I'm a lifelong United Methodist, born and raised, now approaching 60 years into the United Methodism. And throughout my whole journey, I never knew a part of my very own history about African Americans and how they formed and helped form the United Methodist Church, or at that time, the Methodist Episcopal Church. 
And I remember going through, I was through seminary, through Sunday school, had all these different things and, and sitting around and, and, and going through confirmation classes, but never heard the story that I'm about to tell you now. How many folks here have heard of something called the Delaware Annual Conference? Two, three, four, a handful. The Delaware Annual Conference. And let me first admit, I never heard of it. Never heard of the Delaware Annual Conference. And as I said, been through seminary, been through all these different things, and I happened to be standing around with a group of other African-American pastors who were all about my age. We were all young, what we called ourselves young Turks at the time. We were like in our 40s or so. We were really very proud of ourselves, congratulating ourselves that we were going to different churches and we're going to be kind of shepherded out and, and really uh, shake up the denomination. And one of our elders, uh, who is no longer with us, Reverend Herbert Palmer, walked up to us, saw us kind of congratulating ourselves, and he asked us, had you ever heard of the Delaware Annual Conference? And we said, no, never heard of it. And he said, you don't even know who you are. And he walked away. Now, six of us heard that. One of us heard it a little bit differently, and that was me. I heard it differently said that, why don't I know of this Delaware Annual Conference? And those few who raised their hand that heard about the Delaware Annual Conference, let me tell you what happened, because it does focus in on why people are chosen and why people are not chosen. So we all know, I hope we all know, that the history of the Methodist Episcopal Church, now known as the United Methodist Church, had a history of trying to grappling with some very, very big issues. And one of the biggest issues that it was grappling with was the issue of slavery. So when the Anglican Church and folks and John Wesley came over to the United States and came here and started preaching this, 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 this troublesome uh, 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 theology of you know, protest and civil action and so forth, they were also coming at a time where slavery was very much an institution that existed and, and was flourishing here in these United States. And kind of had to be convicted a little bit because how can you preach about freedom yet still own slaves? So these were folks who were still grappling with it and what they decided to do was back in 1864, now remember, this quick little history lesson, because uh, I also am a little bit of a professor when I teach at Temple, I like to find out what my class knows about its own history. 1864, does anyone know what was happening in these United States around 1864? I'm sorry, say it. Right, say, yes, and? Right, right, absolutely. The Emancipation Proclamation was happening around that time, Civil War, yes, absolutely. All these things were happening in 1864, around that time. So, at the time where the city, sorry, the country was being split, and slavery was one of the biggest issues that it was, that it was the Methodist Episcopal Church was grappling with it too. It couldn't reconcile how it was going to preach freedom yet still enslave folks throughout the country. So what they decided to do, they established something in 1864. It actually was first introduced in 1844. It took 20 years of general conferences to then come up with a solution. I hate to use that word, but that's what they called it, called the Delaware Annual Conference. What the Delaware Annual Conference was, they, meaning the general conference, were going to put all the folks who identify as African-American in the denomination into one big conference the Delaware Annual Conference. So it really didn't matter where you were, it was going to be the place 
that would have its bishops, it would have its pastors, it would have, it, it actually became a conference within the conference. Now, you think about that, say like, is that a good solution? Think about this example that we just had when we had to separate between blue and green. All of a sudden, simply because of the color of their skin, they were now put into a segregated conference in 1864 as the solution to reconciling about having African Americans in the denomination. What's strange about that was that that structure existed for a hundred years. It went from 1864 to 1964. For a hundred years, this entity existed. And as I said, when this was brought up to me, I was stunned because how could I have not known this? I was born in 1962. The Delaware Annual Conference existed when I was born. How could I go through Sunday school and it never come up? I even asked my parents, did you know anything about this? They knew anything about it. My grandparents kind of knew about it, but again, not the history. And that made me go back even further beyond 1864. So, well, where were all the black folks in the Methodist Episcopal Church from its founding, because it just didn't start in 1864. I mean, we've got history, you go down to St. George, you're going back to the 1700s and sometimes even records from the 1600s. And that started to kind of really blow my mind because again, they were free people who were in these, this area, particularly in Delaware County, Philadelphia County, and were Methodist Episcopals and so forth. So they were there. And what struck me was that, you know what? That prompted me to write this book. It's called Freedom Drawn From Within because African-Americans were there at the very beginning of the denomination. So when you think about being chosen or not being chosen, that little encounter with Reverend Palmer saying that I didn't know who I was, I thought he was speaking directly to me. And when you're chosen, that means you have to act on some things. I'm thinking about the example we just had between the blues and the greens when someone said, why didn't anybody stand up and say, not go? Because that becomes what we have to do. Even the scripture that we read this morning, when we look at the transfiguration, Jesus selected certain disciples to go with him to the mountain. Peter, John, they, they were all going up. They were a little sleepy. I mean, I kind of get that the disciple work is kind of tough. But when they went up to the mountain, and saw this wonderful light around Jesus, and they saw Elijah and Moses, they didn't know how to interpret it, but they were chosen to go with Jesus to see this great miracle. And isn't it interesting that when they came down from the mountain, it was time to get back to work. And interestingly enough, they saw Jesus differently then. And I would imagine the disciples saw the other disciples differently then. They had had an experience that no one else had had. And once you have an experience, once you have an encounter, once you experience what you experience, you have been chosen to do something with that experience. Sometimes we have ex these experiences and we think that we're chosen and we just decide that, well, that was that. Maybe something's good on the other side of that. We'll wait to see. But you know what? When we see injustice, when we know what's wrong, when we know we can do something about it, 
We have a responsibility because whether it was a bright light or someone said, you need to do this, God convicts us all to try to do something differently than what we're doing before because we are chosen. We follow a Christ that is built around social acting and civic uh, uh, unrest and trying to find things to make things right. We need to speak up and speak out against what's happening in Ukraine. We need to speak out about things when Black Lives Matter. We need to speak out when we're trying to shut down education as opposed to liberate folks. We are supposed to be different if we're trying to act like Christ. Christ was not trying to please people. He came, what, to transform the world, not to conform to it. And if we call ourselves followers of Christ, then we're convicted every day. We have to remember that instance. You have to remember the feeling that you had when someone in a position of authority was telling you to do something wrong and you need to speak up to do something right. We're obligated. We're convicted. We're chosen. Now, let me talk about the other side. What is it to be not chosen? Well, here's the thing. You can decide whether you're chosen or not because you have free will. You can decide, you know, today I'm chosen to do something. I don't need someone to come along and tell me that, okay, you are chosen. I mean, I could have been the same person in that group of six people who says, well, that was interesting information. I'm, I don't consider myself to be chosen. And I have to tell you, even though this is a really, really small book, it was a huge effort to even put it to play because there was so much that I didn't know. But when you don't know something, but you feel like you're chosen to do something, it then becomes your responsibility to find out more. I look at these names on the walls that we have. These are all folks who at some point in their lives decided that they were chosen to do something. Now here's the other great thing about this. No one who is chosen to do anything does anything by themselves. There will be critics, always. When you're trying to do something right, there's gonna be somebody who's gonna say, please stop, don't do this, don't tell this story, don't do X or don't do Y but there will be more people to say, I will support you, I will pray for you, I will help you along. None of these folks got there on their own and I find it at a time when we are in a very historical moment at this time in the life of our world. Not just things that are happening in Ukraine, but again, we're about, we hope and pray, that we're about to have the first African-American female Supreme Court justice. That is a process, that is also, this is someone who was chosen and has been nominated, but now we'll still need the support. And what will that mean? Because there becomes an accountability that we have to make sure that we continue to move things forward as opposed to slipping back. It amazes me that sometimes we as Christians decide that, well, it's not our fight. It's not really kind of our issue. And it's not really something I want to get involved in. Those are also choices. And the last thing I will say is that we are at an important time in the life of our denomination. We're now that prayerfully we're on the other side of the pandemic. We are still dealing with a lot of things that have to be reconciled, not only the, the racial reckoning, but we know that we're about to have a fight on our hands about welcoming our LGBTQIA brothers and sisters and what is going to happen to our denomination. One thing that I hold on to very, very tightly is that I am so grateful 
that it is not just in a person's hands or human hands, better said, that it really is in God's divine hands as to what type of denomination we will be going forward. Because when you think about what we're about to do, people have already predicted what's going to happen. Oh, it's going to split the church. Oh, it's going to destroy the church. Oh, it's going to do this. Well, you know what? Every time someone says they know what's going to happen, they don't know the God that I know. They don't know what is going to happen because still it is in God's hands. And even if it's going to be difficult, even though it's going to be rough, even though it's going to be bumpy, I know that at the end of this, whatever the end is, we will be forever changed. That transfiguration that happened, I'm so, so honored to be speaking with you on today as the Transfiguration Sunday because Jesus was forever changed. And when the cloud came and, and, and God said, this is my son who I am well pleased, listen to him. That convicts all of us that there's a light in all of us, that it is our choice to shine that light, that when someone says you do wrong, we have to show that we can do right. Because when you're chosen, it's not just about a position. It's not just about some kind of designation. It's not whether you're green or you're blue. What it is about is what are you going to do with being chosen to do something? Because it all comes down to how we act, not just to who we are. Because who we are sometimes determines and dictates how we're going to act. So we all have a choice. So even though it was uncomfortable, even though it was kind of a little confusing to use that word, even though it was like, well, what is somebody else going to do? Remember this feeling, because we are all here at a time that God has chosen us to do right by the universe that he oversees and moves forward. We do have privilege. We do have power. We do have voice. We do have action. Let's find ways to do something about it. Amen. And here are some more interesting black facts. We have Dr. Mae Jemison uh, was the first woman of color to go into outer space. And now just think about what space travel is today. That's almost second nature now because of all these different spacecrafts and we got the International Space Station. And now talks are commercializing um, space travel. Um, but she is the first woman of color to do that. And then we have Misty Copeland, the first woman of color to become a dancer at an American ballet theater. And then Nichelle Nichols, the first African-American woman to play a lead role on a television show. Congratulations to them. Well, that was quite a sermon. And I'm just wondering, Lawrence, how did you experience that sermon from Reverend Brown This, on the subject of being chosen or not? I'm curious to hear your response, both as a member of the church, but also as an online listener. Yeah, that a lot of things about that sermon really struck me. Um, even just with the title itself, being chosen or not, I think it really highlights something that is an ongoing 
thing that we all experience because I'm sure at some point in our lives we've been chosen and we've also been left out. Um, I really liked his activity with the blue and green bracelet as the congregation came into the sanctuary. Some got blue bracelets, some got green bracelets, but you know, there was no explanation as to why till he started speaking. Um, that whole activity kind of reminded me of what's called a race walk that we did at my school as a part of our professional development, where um, the person leading the professional development read off some scenarios or some phrases, and then we would take a step forward or take a step back if it um, applied to us. Mm -hmm. And then after that, after the whole thing was over, we kind of took a look around and saw that some of us were further ahead and then some of us were really, really far behind. I found myself a part of that well behind the rest of my mm -hmm. colleagues, further behind than I even imagined it. And it kind of felt kind of bittersweet, sad, because thinking about how far of a, at a disadvantage that I really was, more so than I ever thought, but also thinking about how far I've come, you know, facing that ad adversity. So mm. I really liked when he said that the people with the green bracelet had the privilege to stay. And he ah, used that word oh. privilege because mm -hmm. we always hear that all the time. Yeah, we always hear that word all the time. So I really think how he did that really explained what privilege truly is without actually just giving the definition of it. He didn't say what it means. He showed us mm -hmm. what it means. Someone in the sanctuary said that no one pleaded for the people that were leaving to stay. And that really got me thinking, mm -hmm. like, um, I can't think of how many scenarios or situations where people, especially people that look like me, get left out, mm -hmm. but no one really pleads my case. And I've seen, you know, other people too, where this would happen and no one would really uh, say, hey, why don't you stay? Or, hey, you don't have to listen to them. I think that would happen more so now than it would back then. But when you take a situation with no context and start this activity, it was very interesting to see that no one kind of stepped up or even thought about, you know, saying, hey, you don't have to go. And I think that just kind of highlights, you know, being highlights the difference of being what I think I mentioned this before, of being an outspoken ally or a silent assassin which means that um, you using your voice um, and your privilege to stand up for people that don't have that or don't have as much uh, power uh, as you may, rather than just being silent and letting things happen, even though that you know that it's wrong. And then mm -hmm. uh, at the very end, uh, he said that if it happens to one of us, it happens to all of us. Um, and that kind of, you know, just reminds me of love thy neighbor. And that's one thing that I think we're kind of, as such society, struggling with. Um, we got to stick up for each other. You know, we can't pick and choose our fights. If one of us is, you know, in trouble, all of us are in trouble. You know, that goes like with the saying, we're only stronger. We're only, our, we're only as strong as our weakest link. So I thought that was really cool that he said that. And even he mentioned briefly about 
people being judged by wearing different masks or differently masked. And I thought that was really interesting because I thought about this because I know mask and vaccination status have become uh, politically charged more so than a safety thing. And I'm really, really glad that he talked about that. And, you know, the word mask could be a classic metaphor of like, you might carry more on your shoulders because you look like this rather than the person standing next to you or just automatically assuming that, you know, I'm not vaccinated or that I vote with this party because I'm not wearing a mask. Um, All those different implications there based on soul judgment, not even having a conversation with them based on just looking at them. And then he briefly talked about uh, the Danu- the Delaware Annual Conference, and I yeah. am just now learning about that um, through the former AME Church, um, and I I really thought that his when he talked about how whoever came up to him says that you don't know who you are and then walked away, I feel that turning point that he talked about kind of struck me a little bit because I think all of us have a moment where we say that or something happened to us or somebody says something to us that totally changes us forever. And it was all about the battle of slavery. Uh, Slaves should be free, but how can you say that we shouldn't have slavery when, you know, we have slaves? So that whole thing too. So I think that was a really important thing to include there. And that kind of just leads to uh, the final thing that you actually said following his sermon is that people that don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. So true. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think that is absolutely 100% true. I think it's always important to know our history, know where we come from, so that we don't make the same mistakes over and over again. And so that we can move forward in a healing, united way rather than a divisive way. Hmm. This has been such a rich podcast when I think about our goal and objective to talk about real issues with real people from a faith perspective, both listening to um, Dr. Lemon, listening to Reverend Brown. It's certainly been, I think, so informative. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us in this episode of The Trolley Stops Here, and we look forward to seeing you next time. The Trolley Stops Here is a ministry of First United Methodist Church in Media, Pennsylvania. It's hosted by Lorianne Rickard and our new co-host, Lawrence Clark. And our podcast is edited by Ayanda Satoli.